What's up, everyone? Welcome to an all-new episode of Suiting Up Podcast presented by our friends at public.com and OutSystems. This is episode three, season three. I'm your host, Paul Rabel. In our first two weeks, we had two goats, one in business in Mark Cuban, the other in hoops in Sue Bird. You should listen to them both if you haven't yet. And this week, we've got the goat of skate, Tony Hawk. That's right, Tony Hawk. You know when you hear about prodigies? Typically means that someone starting at a young age having exceptional skill, almost bordering destiny. That's Tony Hawk. Though he'll tell you he worked his ass off to get where he is today, and he did. Though he has this insatiable obsession for his craft. The intellect tied to improvement and innovation, by IQ test standards at least, he's considered a genius, and he has an insane compete level. I told Tony before the show that he's about as close to the blueprint for emerging sports league athletes as anyone, the modern athlete. And when it comes to success, his discipline matched with brand marketing, crossing over into new industries like video games, even building the board for emoji keyboards, building his own skate business called Birdhouse, even an episode dedicated to Tony Hawk on The Simpsons. Anyway, he's done it all. And to be honest, when people call someone the Michael Jordan of, that carries a lot of weight especially in craft and discipline. But when they say the Tony Hawk of, that means you're changing an entire industry, creating a new audience, fighting stereotypes, and propelling people forward beyond sport. On the show, we talk about how he did it. So let's get to it. This show is made possible by our two presenting sponsors, firstpublic.com, who offers a whole new way to invest. They've democratized trading, giving us space to even talk about it, where they've made the stock market social on their platform where you can follow other investors, even your friends, where you then follow companies, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. I love public.com and OutSystems. They provide the tools to help companies build apps, for example, web and mobile, to solve for their business needs, like the PLL's Championship Series, where we worked with OutSystems to design our COVID app for health and safety protocol, ensuring the best environment for our players, staff, and coaches. Thank you, OutSystems and public.com. Timing couldn't have been better. This week, you hit the 720, you posted it on your Twitter, but hit it again. But this is 21 <laughs> yeah. years after the mega performance at X Games where you hit the 900, but you're 52 years old. So what the fuck inspired that? How do you get that done? You have people like me that are trying to like finish their professional careers strong um, and then looking at someone like you that continues to somehow do this. <laughs> Uh, well, I don't know if I'm on that trajectory, but uh, the story behind 720 was that I had done one. I did one about three years ago for a video that I'm. It's out there. It's it's, it's called 50 Tricks at 50. So I, I basically chose 50 tricks that I have created through the years and tried to do them all for my 50th birthday. And the 720 was gave me a lot more trouble than I thought. And if you watch the video, I actually ended up sort of coming off the side of the ramp and, and flying through the air and hitting a pole. It didn't really instill confidence and had been thinking about trying it again. And a friend of mine hit me up and, and he said, hey, do you want to just put that down? Like, I'll shoot it. Let's let's just go do it. And I said, yeah, you know what? And we set a date. And I thought I, if I put my mind to it, it would come pretty easily. And it ended up being way harder than I thought. So I think that's what probably made it sort of go viral is that you can see how how much effort I put into it and, and kind of the struggle and, and the, the determination behind it. I mean, that's skateboarding yeah. um, in a nutshell 
is like you're trying and trying and trying. So you finally make it once and maybe that's enough. Just that one time, you know, knowing that I'm way older and probably one of my last ones that adds to the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I created that trick in 1985 Damn. and it's still super hard. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the 50 tricks at 50, you hit the 900 when you were 48 again. That one definitely was felt like my last one. I'm not saying <laughs> never say never on the 720, but that 900 was so hard that I feel like, yeah, I'm going to let that one go. Do you ever feel, or did you feel like this as a skater that you put into your, to your uh, point, so much work to accomplish your goal. And then once it's done, there's this elation that you see on your face. And then it's like, all right, what have you done for me lately? Do you start going back to the drawing board? And how do you balance that in a sport that requires so much effort to accomplish something new? And then once something new happens, people want the next new. That's a good question. I, I definitely feel that. And I feel like I've been chasing that buzz of, of landing something or landing something new or for, for my first time, most of my life. When the hype kind of fades from one, definitely there is a, there is a mindset. It's like, well, next, what is it? What's coming, what's coming up? And so I think it's more learning to enjoy that success more hmm. instead of just letting it die quickly Yeah, and embracing it more. And, and I think I have, I've definitely grown to appreciate it more. I mean, 10 years ago, if I did a 720, I, I used to do 720s 10 years ago in <laughs> exhibitions and stuff like that. And it was like, eh, that's what they expect of me. And I think I've learned to covet or to celebrate it more because yeah, I'm way older. Uh, it, it's very likely I won't be able to be doing it again. And it's cool. Yeah, I like that notion of appreciating that accomplishment because in sports, we're always grinded out to what's the next one, go get the next one, we'll celebrate tonight, and then we'll prepare for the next championship. And it was really hard for, I think for most athletes, for me too, took me into my 30s to, to deal with all of that kind of hardship and sometimes post-game, post-season depression. It's just not eternal. You can't keep it going forever. So you do have to learn to, you don't want to rest on your accolades, right. but, it, but it's definitely something that you should be proud of. You know, there, there's the whole Uncle Rico vibe that's just like, I could have been, you know, I did something, I could have been something, <laughs> throw a football over the mountain, you know, and, and it's like that whole thing, you'll be chasing that for the rest of your life and then yeah. it'll kill you. Yeah. They say athletes get a lot better uh, with age when they reflect on their work, <laughs> uh, to your point. But, you know, the other thing I see when I watch your videos, even back to the 90s uh, when you're with Bones Brigade and earlier than that, is that. Well, there's two things I really respect out of your business is, is one, first with video parts, now with social, the industry and the pros show their failures, show their frustration, show their falls, which is the tension build. And it allows us as viewers to feel the excitement more. But what I look at with the best athletes in the world and you being one of them is you can see it in your eyes. It's not just the falls. It's this competitive like fierce glare that you have. And when we were doing some research on you, your mom said early on that you were so hard on yourself and expected so much of yourself. That feels like this competitive fire. Where did you get that from? I can't attribute any one thing. It's more that if I was thinking about skating or doing something, I thought I can do that. And it was more like, 
I'm going to do everything I can to reach that goal because I know in my heart of hearts that I am capable of doing that thing. You know, sometimes it may seem outrageous, but I'm going to, I'm going to chip away at it little by little until I get to the point where I can actually try it. Yeah. I think my disadvantage at that time, especially with my mom was that I was really small. So I would have been capable of these things that I thought I could do. I was just too small to get the inertia Hmm. or to get, you know what I mean? I didn't have the bulk behind me to get in the air like that. And I actually had to sort of create my own way of doing that, of getting in the air. And, and, and that's something that, that has been um, credited to me. It was like this first one to all into my aerials. And it wasn't like I was trying to create a movement. It was because it was, I was desperate. Yeah. I wanted to figure out how to get in the air and I couldn't do it in the way, the traditional way that the bigger, older guys did it. Do you think you have that dream, that ambition to hit the next trick like you've done in business too? Is it like a, a an exact parallel do you feel when it, when it comes to setting goals? And even if they feel too ambitious, you're just like, Hey, I'm going to go tackle this thing. I guess the one thing that skateboarding prepares you for is failure. So if something doesn't work, like I, I'll, I'll tell you the story. Like I, I did a commercial last year for a very prominent insurance company. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the coolest commercials I've ever done. And because of the timing of it, because of a little bit, because of the, the creative, it kept getting postponed hmm. because the world was turning upside down. And they just told me it's not happening. They're not going to air it. And I'm okay. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if, if it had been in my youth 20 years ago, I would have been crushed that this didn't happen. Yeah. So like I said, skateboarding prepares you for failure and for perseverance. Yeah. And I mean, wham, poor me. I did a commercial. It didn't there. But, you know, I worked so hard on it and I thought it was really cool and I was excited for people to see it, but it's not going to, no one's going to see it. Yeah. You talk about that resilience and, and perseverance a lot. And I think that uh, conflicts with the general perception of skaters. How, how much did that weigh on you? And, and I feel it too, you know, as a lacrosse player, and there are stereotypes associated with any sport or cohort of people or audience segments, but the stereotype of, of skate and how you have, you know, really been the one over the last 20 and 30 years to embrace and evolve it. Do you think about that a lot and how did it wear on you when you were younger versus what you've been able to do now? Uh, well, when I was younger, I, I didn't feel the pressure of being some sort of ambassador or pioneer. I was just I was just happy learning tricks. I loved it. Like I loved, I loved skateboarding. I love what it, how it made me feel, how it gave empowered me to be creative and how I could do it in my own terms, in my own style. Like all those things spoke to me, even the culture. I love that there was a totally different attitude, music, fashion. And so I felt like I found my tribe. I think in the last 20 years or so is when I've only realized that I do have an obligation and, and it, maybe it's self-imposed, maybe other people put it on me, but I have an obligation to represent skateboarding and to represent it for all aspects. I'm not just going to paint some rosy picture of skateboarding. There are plenty of skaters that are raw, that trespass, that want to skate you know, yeah. in the public areas. And I respect that because that's what drives them. And that's, that's how they feel creative. That's how they feel a sense of belonging. Hmm. And so I owe it to them to acknowledge them and to represent them as well, because I have a voice that, that transcends just the skate industry. Yeah. You're probably not going to want to, uh, 
talk about this too much, so I'll talk about it for you. But um, you have an IQ of 144. <laughs> it might have it might have weighed since I took it as a kid. But yeah. you think about athletes, think about entertainers. You know, we get often lumped into categories as dumb jocks. And same thing with entertainers, actors. I've found consistently by data as well as by kind of emotional intelligence through through meeting and scenes and tracking the success of people that you know this this number didn't surprise me. And at a baseline, anything above 140 is considered high or, or genius level. Uh, you were a vinyl, violinist before you got your first board from your brother. Um, and you probably could have done a lot. I'm sure it, it lends to what you've done at the business level. But how do you how do you think about your intellect related to your performance as a skater creatively? And like, how do you think about it related to all of your entrepreneurial ventures? I guess I, I never connected that somehow my IQ was related to my success physically as a skater, but maybe it's it's in terms of how I break down tricks or possibilities. Hmm. And that could be related. How do you do that? Just little by little, like what little tweak would work here? I mean, I, I see people try stuff and they just get stuck in a mode. They get stuck in a mode and they don't change anything and they're not getting any closer to this goal. And it's almost like they, they can't break out. They're their own worst enemy in that sense. Yeah. And I think that from my perspective, I'll try to change up a little bit at a time to figure out what might work better. And eventually I get to that goal because I was able to adapt to it. That could just come from experience as well, or determination or stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't, I can't say that it's, it's some sort of mathematical genius that, that can, that you need to do these things, but for sure, in terms of wanting to learn more about say a business opportunity, um, I'm all in. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm not just, I'm just not, I don't just write checks or I don't just say, yeah, I like this thing and pay me. Yeah. It, it definitely, I'm, I'm more involved in it and I am curious about the process of it because it's fascinating. Through your experience, you're now interviewing people about their experiences in their own. And, and that is something that a lot of people wouldn't want to put the effort into. You and I talked pre-show about uh, the influence that, that your career has had on mine. And, and the interesting part if I think about skate and lacrosse and skate has probably three or four X, the number of skaters participants in the U S than lacrosse does, there's over 6 million, but there's 85 million skaters in the world. You started your pro career when you were 14. By the time you were 17, you were considered the best in the world. And by the time you were 25, you had participated in over a hundred contests and won about 75% of them. So that record will, will never be taken from my perspective. And I think largely because of who you are and what you've been able to do, but also because through your career, you've expanded the interest and participant base in the sport. So now all of a sudden there's a lot of parody and that's what we see in football, basketball, baseball, lacrosse is it's just really hard to win at that clip. But what I want to ask you about with skate is you were moving up and moving up fast and being compensated fairly for that. And then in 91, the sport kind of paused and started trajecting down again. And that's when that intellect maybe comes in and you go, well, I see some of my colleagues going off to other industries. In lacrosse, a lot of my peers who are all Americans in college who maybe don't have the wage in the pro game that they want, they go and work. You saw a lot of that. You worked, but you launched Birdhouse. 
so you kept it in your industry. What was your thought process like in 91 when you were riding this thing and then, fuck, it kind of pauses and, and goes down a little bit? I think at that point in my life, it was more that I, I got to hustle. I got to make ends meet. I got two mortgages. I had a child on the way. Damn. Desperation took hold. And, and so I just had to make a living. And so it wasn't like I was had some mastermind plan that's like, oh, I'm going to move into this and, and get, become an expert. I'm going to start a brand and it's going to blow up. It was like, I got mouths to feed and what can I make happen? And so I took a lot of odd jobs right then. Um, I was a consultant for a few commercials and Hollywood projects because I was too old to be the stunt guy in their eyes because they just wanted kids skateboarding. Damn. So I was <laughs> the consultant or I, I, I mean, at one point I, I was tasked with building some launch ramps for a soda commercial. That was my job. And hey, I needed the money. I took it. And I had an editing system. So I uh, did some odd jobs uh, editing skate videos yeah. for other brands. And I thought starting a skate brand was my transition from being a pro skater to being a businessman. It sounds way cooler the way you say it. Because it sounds like, you know, I was already branching out and I had this great big plan. And I was like, I was taking anything I could. Yeah, going back to, to showing failures through video parts and, and edits now on social, you know, I was so obsessed and controlling over the image I was putting out on social. And you know, the market thinks that for someone like yourself, that, you know, there was this master plan and we see kind of the results time and time again. And sometimes they're, you know, months apart or years apart. Uh, but we don't, as a culture, think about the challenges, you know, and, and you're eating off a $5 a day Taco Bell allowance and picking up gigs after you were the best in the world and continued to be. And this was, you know, five, six, seven years before you hit the 900 at X Games. So it's just like, man, the amount of failure and pain that you've experienced along the way and the perseverance takes you to the places that you are now, and we don't talk about them. I've been down and I knew how hard it was. You know, I was definitely, I was living paycheck to paycheck, if that. And so I think that maybe people see that I have a huge appreciation for what I do and the success I have because I've lived that life of struggle and challenge. And, you know, some people think, oh, it was just the right place at the right time. Like, well, I was in the right place, but over a long period of time and yeah. I had to fight for it. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, I never, I never claimed poverty. Like I was able to have a roof over my head. I was able to feed my family. I just had to work long, long days to make it happen sometimes. So as 93 approaches and ESPN management decides to start thinking about sinking resources in the creation of action sport athletes and, and maybe like building a, a league around what had previously existed in the circuit. How involved were you in that? Did you have management? Do you have agencies? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Those are the lean years for me. So uh, <laughs> when they announced X Games and when they presented me with what it was, I, they weren't asking for input. They were going to do it regardless of who was in it and what you thought of it, that they were full steam ahead. So I had the feeling that we're going to get this opportunity as skaters to have a window of programming on a, a major sports network. Like that, that's a big deal. You know, I mean, my, my dad was a huge team sports fan. And for him to know that skateboarding was going on ESPN, that was, that was the top. 
You know, I was, I was, that was the biggest thing that could happen. So I knew that there was a big opportunity there. I knew that their angle on extreme was super cheesy. <laughs> they were, they were grouping us in with bungee jumping and rock climbing. And so we're just extreme athletes in their eyes. But at the same time, I thought, well, I feel like we can rise above that noise. If we just show who we are and the passion that, that we have and the talents that we have. And so that was it for me. I was, I was just ignoring all that noise in the background. I was just like, let's just show what we do. Yeah. And I feel like it took a couple of years, but by 97, 98 skateboarding was one of the highlights of the X games. And it was not, it was no longer grouped together with everything else. And the home audience came to appreciate skateboarding for what it really is. And, and the difficulty factor. That network distribution, as you mentioned, is everything. I mean, when we launched the POL, we needed and knew that we needed a network partner, and we uh, and we partnered with NBC. And on top of it, with all the streaming platforms, we knew that holy grail for sports, it's like a validator, is broadcast owned and operated. And now you, we see X Games on ABC, but ESPN is pretty close to broadcast owned and operated and we have distribution, and then cable would be ESPN2 or NBC Sports. But right. that, that distribution all of a sudden elevates. And then came 99, where you hit the 900, but we talk about like the intellectual capacity and the work that goes into it. You were working on it for 10, 12 years or so, and it was on your 12th attempt at the move. I had tried 900s for 10 years, off and on. I had really focused on it in 98 because we were shooting a video for our team Birdhouse. And so I was at the rant, like I'd try it for, you know, way beyond 12 tries. I was there for hours and come away battered and not make it. So when that, that best trick event happened in 99, it was at a time when there were a few different best trick events at different uh, venues, not just X Games. There was the Hard Rock Championships. There was um, another series. And every once in a while, they would do a best trick event at the end of the contest. And it was like, hey, you guys got 20 minutes. Go for your best tricks. And for the most part, it wasn't a fun thing for spectators to watch. It was everyone just bailing nonstop, <laughs> dropping on, you know, dropping in on each other and just falling on some impossibly difficult trick. And maybe three or four people made theirs, and those were the winners. And so I had developed a strategy in my best trick because I would go with one in my back pocket. Like, I've done this trick a couple times. <clears throat> I know I can make it within that time frame. And if I make it, I'll go on to something else that's harder, that's less likely. So that was my mindset going into the X Games. Best trick was like, all right, I got this one trick. I'm, I've made it a few times. I think I can do it. I made that trick pretty quickly. And then I said, okay, I'm going to do a very all 720. I made one in my life. And I made it on maybe the fourth attempt. And that left me with half of this time to eat up. Wow. And I just thought 900 would be the next best trick I could possibly do. Like in my lifetime, what I would want to accomplish with a best trick, like that's that's it. That's that's the one I've been striving for. And I thought, why don't I just try it to show the? It was really it was like here, here's what it here's what it looks like when you fall on 900. Yeah, yeah. And so I tried a couple for the crowd, and there was something about the ramp and my timing that I started to feel I had a consistent speed and a consistent spin and that had never happened before every time that i had tried it in pre in previous years on other ramps i'd get one good spin one good takeoff and then 
the next three were not ideal and I couldn't really get a consistent uh, spotting of my landing. And so at this, this ramp was, was exceptional and it had a really good surface that was, that was grippy. So for skating vert, when it's grippy, you get more speed. Yeah. Um, it's harder to adjust landings, but it gives you way more speed. After about my fifth attempt, I was like, maybe I could actually do this because I'm finally seeing the landing. See, I mean, you watch the video, you can see it around my sixth or seventh attempt where I was like, I'm going to put this on the wall. Yeah. And I'm either going to make it or I'm going to be taken away in an ambulance. Like those were the only choices. Damn. There was no walking away and giving up. Damn. When we started this, you said uh, one of the challenges when you were younger is you were smaller, so you couldn't like build up the inertia. You're 6'3 now. Have you ever dunked? And I'll get to why I'm asking. <laughs> I Yes, I have actually in my 20s. So I think about the dunk contest in the NBA. And the thing about the dunk contest, and I want your your opinion on the difference between, you know, the physical exertion of energy is like in the dunk contest, if you're going for something huge and you don't hit it in the first one or two times, you just get exhausted and you're far less likely to hit it thereafter. I don't see that in skate and I don't know why. Like it seems like you got better as that went on and you were obviously catching your breath. But what's the difference there, having been someone who can dunk and then hit a 900 at the end of a long day? Well, I think the difference is that we, when you're doing that, like you're doing a, a crazy dunk, you probably have already done it. Hmm. And so you're trying to hit it that day. I had never actually completed this. Wow. And so each attempt, I was, I was getting a little closer, figuring something else out about it. Any one of the last, say, four or five attempts could have been the one I made for sure. But even in those instances, there was a little adjustment that I had to make to get that landing. And so that kind of trick, there's so much that goes into it. You're usually not going to make your first or second attempt. You need to find that rhythm first to get into it. If you're in the clutch and it's the finals or whatever, yeah, you better make it first try. But most likely you tried a couple in practice to get that rhythm. Do you think your colleagues there who were all banging their boards against the ramp and then the crowd energy also helps? Or, or were you when you go into that flow state, is it all of that shit zoned out and you're just focused on those micro changes? I, I was totally in my own space. Amazing. <laughs> to have the support of your competitors is incredible. And that is, that is rare. I, I think that that's something that's unique to skateboarding. The guys you're actually competing against are going to root you on because you're doing this for the, it's like for the, the greater good to see how far we can take this thing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break in the action to talk about one of our show's sponsors. Look, as you know, I'm obsessed with studying business trends and applying areas of expertise in the profession of sports to an investment strategy. I have a small IA with my brother and a few partners called Rabel Ventures. Though I don't know where to start when it comes to analyzing intraday charts and talking like a trading broker, but I can talk business toe to toe. And that's where public.com comes in to support people like myself and you. It's a free investing app that also services as a tutorial and an open forum in a way. They've humanized the stock market They've created an educational space for having conversations with other investors about business in that very same place you invest. The community of public.com includes people from a range of backgrounds so you can have insightful conversations about topics like streaming media and big tech. And the best part is you can just be yourself. I've been on the app for a few months now, and it's my favorite social platform of them all. 
You know who else is on the app? Tony Hawk. And you can join me and Tony there today by going to public.com forward slash suiting up. That's public.com forward slash suiting up. And I'll start you off with $10 in free stock on me. Note, this is only valid for U.S. residents, 18 and up, and subject to account approval. See public.com forward slash disclosures for more. Our second sponsor is the wonderful OutSystems. They're an applications company that make the difference for our business and others. Allow me to explain. They have a modern app platform for building the software that helps us, both mobile, app, and digital. It's fast, it's right, it's for the future, it's price well. OutSystems empowers teams to develop and deploy innovative cloud applications for capturing new markets, delivering new services, and winning new customers. The new services for us in the championship series, which was our bubble tournament last summer, was an app that every player, coach, and staff member had daily checkpoints ensuring health and safety so we could complete the tournament the way that we did. And you can do things like that with OutSystems. Feel the difference with them today. Learn more at OutSystems.com. That is OutSystems.com. There's so much community and tribalism in, in your sport. I also like that through the creativity and imagination, you create a trick, you get to name it. I was at a summer camp, skate summer camp in Sweden in 1985. Actually, the same year I, I created the 720. And some guy was looking through my stuff as we were just sitting there talking. And I was keeping this really cryptic journal of our days. Yeah. And he looks on this paper and he's like, stale fish. What's a stale fish? He goes, <laughs> is that is that that grab you do, that weird grab with your backhand? And, and at the time, I didn't have a name for the grab. <laughs> and it was actually what I, that was my, my way of explaining what our lunch was. Okay. <laughs> So I just wrote stale fish because they, they served us this, this fish that was clearly not fresh on a plate. Like that was our lunch in Sweden. It was just a whole fish. <laughs> and so I wrote stale fish and this guy is like, is that that trick? And I said, yeah, that's that trick. And that was it. It was named. Perfect transition to like the, the big bump from the 900. You had been working with Activision and Neversoft on uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater, right? THPS. And it was due to come out a few months after X Games 99, you didn't have the 900 plan, you pull it off, all of a sudden international superstardom and this game pops. And the game probably probably would have popped anyway, but as you know, in the marketing of a sport and marketing of an athlete in the face of, of the sport and the face of this game, I mean, the franchise has since done over a billion and a half in, in sales and, um, you know, 30 different versions um, what was, what was that next phase of your life? Like it was wild. It, it um, I, I reached a level of recognition and success that I would never have dreamed of. Because if you think about when I started skating, the, the, the most success you could have would be to get your picture in a magazine and maybe get some free gear. And if you're winning contests, you would win $150 for first place. So that was it. That was that was the top of the mountain. And so when this stuff started happening after after THPS was released, it was unreal. I mean, I was getting invited to Hollywood events and getting offers to do huge campaigns and and mainstream commercials and and that's just stuff I never imagined or never really sought. I, I wasn't trying to go there. You know, I was I was just happy that my skating was my living 
and that I was starting to make a decent living for my family. But when things got that big, it was, it was kind of crazy. Like it was, it was actually hard to find time to skate. Damn. Because suddenly I was doing all this other stuff. And, and I, at some point I reined it in because I realized I was kind of losing myself and in a lot of ways, losing touch with my family. Cause I was just off and running. And then at some point it was like, do you really need to go to con to go to this fundraiser for some other charity, you know, and, and miss your kids lacrosse game. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a real thing. Like that actually did happen, Damn. you know? And, and at some point I had to rein it in cause it was just like, no, that's not that important. Did you ever reach a place where you weren't happy with all of this or was it just continually fluid? Yes and no, I, I, but I think it was more on my terms. I was off and running in those years, probably in like the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and maybe kind of got lost in it. And then at some point realized that my skating was suffering because of that. And that's what really was bringing me more happiness. And I, and I think it was around probably 10 to 12 years ago is when I I started focusing more on skating and actually improve my skating a great deal hmm. and realized that I can still do this and still be relevant. And I don't need to go to the MTV awards. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't, I don't need to play that game anymore. And, and Hey, it, you know, I, I, I was trying to taste it all. And, and that is really celebrity is the worst drug. You know, you just keep chasing it and it's never going to be enough. And at some point it was like, I just want to enjoy my family and I want their, I want their approval. I want their validation hmm. and this other stuff. Sure. Some of it's a job and, and a lot of it's successful, but I can prioritize a lot better than I have been. The impact of a video game. And we see it now with esports more than ever. Do you think it, it made the sport more, not only accessible, um, but understood for, for, and probably as a result, more inviting, like what were your biggest takeaways for, for that video game success? When I first set out to work on the game, my goal was that the game would appeal to hardcore skaters so much that they would be, they would be inspired to buy a PlayStation. That was it for me. That was the mark of success. Right. And what happened was that happened, but more that gamers hardcore gamers enjoyed playing it so much it inspired them to start skating Damn. or at the very least appreciate skating from a fan's perspective and that was the tipping point for skateboarding because suddenly especially in places in events like the x games there was a whole home audience that understood it you know what i mean like yeah. they understood someone did a 360 flip to crooked grind because they did it on the game yep and that had never happened before. So I think that was probably the silver lining to all of it, where it was like it created a fan base for skateboarding that maybe don't even try skating, but to truly appreciate the skills involved. Yeah, I think that's like really good advice for a lot of us that aren't a, a mainstream sport is that we're wired to think how we showcase the game to people who aren't familiar with the sport like me talking to you and your son and daughter already play and, and you know, me wanting Tony Hawk to be really interested in the sport, that should be, per your point, organic coming off of us focusing on our core audience first. Like, let me, let me build this game so that skaters buy a PlayStation and then as an outcome, the game's so badass that other people are buying a board because they're playing the game. There was a point where I had a bit of a disagreement with my old partner at birdhouse because uh we were 
submitting all the skate graphics all of our skateboards to the game. And he's like, well, don't you think they should pay us for that? And I said, I don't think so. Cause I feel like this is the, this is the crazy advertising and marketing for us. Yeah. I feel like if anything, we should be paying them for the opportunity, <laughs> but I don't know how the game is going to do. So basically he agreed to just give them the graphics and for sure, that was a huge reason that that Birdhouse took off in those years. Yeah, because people were pining for those same graphics in the game, and, and our sales skyrocketed. That broader view of uh, understanding distribution, from what you said about X Games to THPS to maybe even The Simpsons, you said it was one of the best things that ever happened to you, most fun things. Uh, how was that? How was that episode? Because it wasn't like a hey, this is an appearance. This is like a full-on episode (laughs) what was that like that was unreal um and i have to credit my my publicist uh sarah hall productions because she is the one who planted the seed there i really kind of didn't know that she was doing that because that she just thought that's part of her job and so she wrote you know she told the, the people in the simpsons hey tony would love to be involved in the episode and the next thing i know they sent me a full script where I am the central figure <laughs> helping Bart be emancipated. And it was unreal. I mean, I, and, and I actually kind of had to re I, I had to reconfigure my schedule at the time because we were right in the middle of rehearsals for our first boom, boom, huck jam tour. And I had to put the whole thing on pause for a couple of days to go to Fox and to, to do the reading and to, record my voice. The most fun part about that whole process was going to the table read because they bring every single character to a table and everyone reads their part. And so you hear these voices that you've known so much of your life coming from the most random people in the room. (laughs) And sometimes a male voice coming from a female and, and vice versa. And it was awesome. It was so much fun. And then to, I mean, to this day, especially in South America, people quote, me the simpsons when i go there why in south america because the the i guess the spanish translation is just as funny yeah <laughs> and so um the big thing that i get when i go to south america is oh tony hawk un grand tipo tony hawk <laughs> and that means um a cool guy because that's what bart was saying when i dropped him off at school he's like hey what's thanks a lot tony hawk cool guy, Tony Hawk. See you later, Tony Hawk. Cause he wants everyone to know that I dropped him off at school. Yeah. And that line itself in Spanish is this huge thing in, in, in like Chile and in Argentina and in Mexico. Anyway, you're now experimenting and experiencing, experimenting through social experiencing through time with the Simpsons and X games and all this other stuff, your video parts originally different people in different age groups that, that see you at different moments and remember them in their lives. And one of the things that I always laugh about is, is your memes on Twitter where you, uh, where you describe those moments and uh, they get shared like wildfire. Um, I'll read yeah. one of them. It said, went to a convenience store on my way to skate, approaching counter with water and Advil. I'm old. So there's some self, self-deprecation. And the clerk goes, you look like someone. And you go, oh, yeah. And he goes, what's your name? You go, Tony. Last name, Hawk. You are him? And you go, yes. And he goes, no charge, but you owe me a selfie. <laughs> Yes, I think I think those times, um, you know, we can all experience them through different moments in our lives. Yours at at scale with fame, but those checkpoints where it probably causes a a bit of humor and reflection, where you can sit back and go, "Damn, man, 
this has been uh, this has been a ride, and and now I get to pass it on to my family and pass it on to the up and comers on social, like a like a talented Sky Brown, and and um, it, it just must feel pretty rewarding. It's fun. I mean, I, I feel like everything I do now is just sort of gravy, and and I've I've lived multiple lives of success and done stuff that I never could imagine possible. So now anything that comes along is just a nice surprise. You know, it's not like I'm striving for some some great um, <laughs> accolades. I'm just happy that I still get to do this and that, and that people recognize me or appreciate it. And in those instances, especially when people see me, but they're not quite sure they recognize me or they know my name, but they can't, they can't match it to the face. Um, I think are, more entertaining than anything. And I think the misconception is that I'm complaining. A lot of people think that, oh, geez, oh, poor you, you don't get recognized. I'm like, no, I'm just telling you, I trust me, I get recognized a lot and it's always awesome. It's always, I'm always thankful. And the most interactions are, what's up? Are you Tony Hawk? Yes, cool, nice to meet you, you too. But that's not really fun to share on social media because it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have the same humor to it. Yeah. Because of my video game success, people have me stuck in this time warp of of being in my 20s and 30s. And so they don't realize that literally 20 years have passed since they played that video game. And I am now in my 50s. And this is what you get. But what you've done and. And this goes back to changing a sport for the good is with your skate park project. It used to be a Tony Hawk foundation, but that's addressing how we started, which is a sport that traditionally didn't have the access in way of parks and rec fields and goals and basketball hoops that other sports do. How can you leverage your, your progress and give back? So you've, you've done that economically with over $10 million contributed, but 600 skate parks in all 50 states. To me, it's like, damn, and I'll, I'll, I'll pass to you. I think about our sports, which it's he- heavily technical and equipment-based, and everyone wants to get more skateboards or more lacrosse sticks in hands, and that's super important. But if you don't have a ramp or if you don't have a goal, then you just have a stick and a board. And, uh, and if you want to try to do a 900 or a 720 or a stale fish, like, you, you, you know, you've got you've to gotta have that goal. Um, and those are those skate parks. It all stems from being very lucky that I grew up near one of the very last skate parks of the 80s. And it was never lost on me how lucky I was to have that place, to have that sense of community to have a place to belong, a place to try new stuff, to learn new techniques. And so when I saw the boom in skateboarding's popularity and the serious lack of facilities, that's when I thought maybe I can do something about this and affect change just in terms of bringing awareness to it. Um, It wasn't like I really had the funding back then. And so, I saw some cities building skate parks, but they're more usually in affluent areas and almost always designed terribly because they would just go with the lowest bidding contractor who was a sidewalk creator or sidewalk contractor. And so they didn't know anything about skate parks. They know how to pour cement. And so these parks would look worse than the local shopping plazas for skating. Damn. (laughs) Um, And... I mean, I literally saw a skate parks design where it was a set of stairs, obviously, that you're supposed to jump down, and then a wall that faced the stairs. (laughs) Because in their eyes, the stairs are for walking up. 
Okay. <laughs> so what I what I set out to do was to try to change that cycle and be a bridge for the kids who they're providing them to and say, look, you got to involve the kids in this process, but more importantly, to divert those fund that funding or to direct that funding to more challenged areas where the where the kids are more at risk and don't have any outlet but choose to skate. We've helped to develop over a thousand skate parks now, and we're in partnership with Skatistan doing facilities in Cambodia and South Africa, soon Jordan. The power of skating is far beyond just trying to create or, or, or people trying to be good at it, to be pro, to be sponsored, to be athletic. It's more that they just want a sense of belonging. And they want a place to go where they feel like they're looked after and they feel like they're not going to get kicked out. And that's it. You know, and so I'm really proud of that work, obviously. And uh, we changed the name last year from Tony Hawk Foundation to the Skate Park Project. And that was more because it's not just about me, obviously. And there was a misconception that I was providing all the funding for it. Hmm. Because if it's my foundation, then it's like, well, why do you need any money? Yeah. You've got plenty of money. <laughs> and like I said, this mission is way bigger than me. And I don't have as much money as people think I do. Yeah. <laughs> That's great, man. That's amazing and inspiring. The, the, the last thing I'll ask you is something that I, I think about often uh, with folks like yourself. You've done just about everything. And you also have a lot of projects you're currently working on. You have a family. You have your rooted passion in skating daily. Uh, you have spontaneous projects that pop up. When you get out of bed every morning, like what's your, what's your true North? Like how do you, how do you approach each day and how do you stay centered with all the shit you have going on? That's a really good question. I think that my, my goal for the day is to be productive, but also be finished at a time that I'm able to devote to my kids after I'm done. I want to have all my stuff that I'm going to accomplish that day done by two to 3 p.m. ish because that's when my kids are available after school and I want to connect with them and to be available to them. And like I said, 10, 15 years ago, I lost myself to nonstop work and nonstop schedule and I felt a disconnect. And so that's it. It's just more like I'm, I'm doing all this stuff to provide for a family. I got to enjoy the family. Amazing. Well, I'll let you get to your family, man. Thanks for coming on. It was uh, super inspiring. Love those anecdotes too. And uh, we're, we're still following your footsteps. Oh, I appreciate it, man. Thank you very much. And I, I'm looking forward to using your lacrosse gear because <laughs> the stuff I bought was not good. <laughs> yeah, that's coming. That's coming next day shipment. A huge thank you to Tony for joining us on the show. I have a couple of takeaways. Number one, his focus and attention to detail are so rooted in the present moment that he's been able to win under pressure, fight through a market turn against skating, and continue on a path that in hindsight became so big, he told us he still can't believe it today. And number two, find time for things that matter the most. In the end, those are your true north moments, people, things. For Tony, it's his family. And skate. Fame and fortune have come but he's had to check them down to remain happy and fulfilled in his life. For those of you who stuck around to the end of this show, thank you. Last week, we asked you to send a pic of where you're listening to the show from and then tag us with a question. We're going to continue that this week. I'll write a reply. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel, and maybe Tony will write a reply. His is at Tony Hawk. And add a joke that might 
encourage Tony to respond, given what we talked about, especially on Twitter. And if you haven't done so, please consider subscribing to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your shows, and consider giving us a rating and review. I would greatly appreciate that. It goes a long way. This show is presented by public.com. By creating a whole new way to invest, public also makes the stock market social so you can follow other investors and friends, discover companies to believe in, and invest with any amount of money. Follow me on public at Paul Rabel for my weekly musings on public companies in sport, media, and tech. And follow Tony Hawk. He's on public as well at Tony Hawk. And thank you, OutSystems. They're a company that provides the tools to help companies quickly build apps, web, mobile. When it came to the PLL, they helped us design our COVID app last summer during the championship series, which ensured the health and safety of all of our players, staff, coaches within the bubble. Thank you again. Now, this show is made possible by our incredible team here at PLL Podcast, produced and edited by Brett Roberts, research done by Andrew Manning, graphics and design, Liam Murphy, coordinated by RJ Kaminsky, and support on our overtime newsletter from Joe Keegan. We'll see you next week.